house, and I'm looking forward to what we have before us for the next three Lord's Days. Uh, We're going to be looking at a topic that uh, I think will be very edifying to all of us. Uh, And that topic has to do with prayer meetings and the place of women in the church's prayer meeting. Now, I realize that this may sound like a controversial uh, topic. It can go in a very controversial direction. Either way you go with a topic like this. What we're going to do over the next three Lord's Days is unpack a motion that was passed by our session over the next three lessons. And those lessons are going to be defining the congregation, defining prayer, and examining the place of men and women within the church, and hopefully bringing all these things together. What I want to do uh, before we open up, though, is, well, to open up, is look at Psalm 74, and then have a word of prayer. Psalm 74, and then we'll open with a word of prayer. Psalm 74, verses 1 and 2, a contemplation of Asaph. O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thanking and rejoicing, thanking you for the blessings that you shower upon us in Christ, and rejoicing in the day that you have set apart for us to lay apart our worldly cares and desires to enjoy these blessings by faith. We ask now, O Lord, that you would help us to understand more of the deeper things of your word, and that you would also, as the psalm uh, guides us, remember your congregation. Remember the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which you have redeemed, and exalt her in the midst of the years, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. As we go through this topic... There's going to be a lot of material that we cover. And so what I want to do for the first part of our time together is really just introduce things and sort of set the table for where we are and why the session has gone in the direction that we have gone in. And I want to start by speaking about the spirit of the age. Now, let me just say this. I'm going to try and leave opportunity for questions. Um... And so, as you have questions, try and save them to the end, and we can go back over the stuff that I cover if there are questions. One of the first things we have to recognize, though, about the day in which we live is the spirit of the age and the, the nature of the age in which we live. The age in which we live is an age reaping the fruits of revolting 
from God's revelation. The age in which we live is an age which is reaping the fruits of revolting from God's revelation. This revolution was birthed during the French Revolution. Liberty, equality, and fraternity became the ethical foundation for Western society. This was a departure from a better basis, namely that of glorifying God. This new foundation can be understood as glorifying man as the basis of ethics. That's something fundamental for all of us to understand about the world we live in. The world we live in is focused on glorifying man, not on glorifying God. And that's where all of the bitter fruit that we're seeing play out before our eyes comes from. The seed of this revolution was apostasy from the God of Scripture revealed to us in the Gospel to the man of nature revealed to us in our own self-consciousness. Let me unpack that a little bit. What the, fe- the, the French Revolution began was a departure in Western society from the God of Scripture revealed to us in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as the highest and ultimate good for everything. Kings, priests, cities, families, children, parents. Everybody needs to know this God. They turned from that to man and his own self-conscious reflection on who man is. That was the direction of the turn. They went from the God of Scripture to the man of nature. What we are seeing today are the bitter fruits of this religious adultery. And I think we do need to understand it as a religious adultery. Because as we all know, Western Europe, every single nation in Western Europe and Eastern Europe for that matter was confessionally and constitutionally Christian. Every single one of them. And they have departed from that to this false gospel of humanism. This is the spirit of the age, and this spirit has affected the church in profound ways. Ways that are often hard to discern. Just as the fish does not know that he is wet... Many churches today do not know they are led along by the spirit of the age. I mean, this is what makes this, this observation so important. We swim in this environment. This is, this is dripping off of everything that we interact with, even out of Christian publishing houses and in Christian pulpits. It's just dripping everywhere we look. One of the chief ways that this spirit has affected the church is through the idea... That everyone has a right to do anything in the church. Everyone has an equal right to do everything that's done in the church. Now you, you hear this kind of stuff now even in the Reformed churches. If you're a Christian, you have an equal right to read the Word of God on Sunday mornings as the pastor does. This is equality. This is a leveling effect. Because we are all equal in Christ, so this Spirit says, none are to be excluded from any part of the church's life. This is a result of ignoring God's hierarchy in the church and has led to numerous errors. 
in essence, the spirit of the age sees all natural, familial, biological, psychological, physical, political, in a word, all created distinctions as obstacles to be overcome rather than guardrails to heed. The the most prominent one today, you are all familiar with it, Male and female is a created distinction. That is not an obstacle to overcome. That is a guardrail to guide us as individuals in how God wants us to live. But you see the same spirit, the same impulse, the same desire spreading everywhere. The doctrine of these created distinctions we call the hierarchy. Now, I realize the term hierarchy is probably maybe an unfamiliar term, or if you're familiar with it, it often has a, a, a negative connotation. What I'm calling created distinctions, just as a, as a whole concept, that whole concept is what I'm calling the hierarchy. Okay? It is within this hierarchy that each of us has a place where we will be most fruitful in the knowledge of Christ, and apart from which we will dry out and wither like an untimely picked pepper. Each of us has a place within the hierarchy. Sometimes this is called the body, but when we talk about society and we talk about what we're going to get into, I want to think about it that way. Each one of us has a place within that hierarchy, a unique place that only you can occupy where God intends you to be the most fruitful you can be, and if we depart from that place, we become disconnected from what we ought to be doing, we end up drying up and withering. So, that's the spirit of the age. Any questions at this point, before I move on? I don't know if it's a proper example, but I know in the past church... There was a family who felt that we didn't have the Lord's Supper often enough, so they had it at home themselves. Mm. That's that's a good example. That, uh, so, just for the sake of the recording, by the way, I am recording this um, for people that may want to listen to it. For the sake of the recording, one of the examples that was brought up illustrating the spirit of the age is those who uh, fathers, heads of household, who feel like they have the authority to administer communion to their family as often as they see fit. But you see how this is also transgressing the places God has appointed. Church officers are in charge of administering this. Fathers of households are not in charge of this. And so this spirit of the age can be a leftist, socialist, revolutionary expression like transgenderism and all these other things. Or it can be a quote-unquote conservative, familial, sort of right-wing expression like hyper-patriarchy or this pedo-communion doctrine, things like that. The spirit can express itself in both directions. So, this is where the motion of the session comes into play. I want to read the motion to you all so that you can have the language. The the session of Grace OPC Lynchburg, Virginia, believes 
that the scriptures teach that women ought not to pray audibly in gatherings of the congregation as the congregation. That was the motion that we passed. We believe that the scriptures teach women ought not to pray audibly in gatherings of the congregation as the congregation. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that. Particularly, how do we define the congregation and how do we define audible prayer? So in order to do that, this first lesson, we're going to define the congregation. This series of lessons is for the purpose of expounding the motion for your edification in the truth and the preservation of the truth as it has been revealed to us by God. Now, Hang with me. Hope you have your swimming caps on because we're about to dive into the deep end. There's an important, still introductory point. The method of doctrine found in Scripture and followed most diligently by the Reformed churches is not the most common in our day. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is when you look at the Scriptures and how the scriptures actually teach, expound, prove, and apply the doctrines that they're putting forward, there is a certain framework or method that the scriptures use. That method and framework is a model and a pattern for us. The apostles can apply that method infallibly, but we, in following the apostles, are bound to imitate their method even though we are fallible. Their method is what we have to follow. But the most common way of teaching Christian doctrine today, many today have been exposed to the sophistry of wicked men. And they have been so exposed to the sophistry of wicked men that they are incapable of following a good and necessary consequence formulation of doctrine. I realize I'm, we're eating some rare steak here, so let me unpack this a little bit. What do I mean by sophistry? Well, sophistry would be the kind of things that you see politicians doing. Something happens, it's recorded, and then the spin doctor, the press secretary, sophistically just sort of twists the words around so it actually means not what it plainly means, but it means something else that is just a perversion of the truth. Okay? Um, Many examples you can see from politics. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that. But that's one of the most common places you'll see it. But you also see it in the church. In fact, Paul warns us of this in Ephesians chapter 4. Notice carefully what Paul warns us about. Ephesians 4.14 One of the roles of Pastors and teachers in the church is to mature the church, 
And church maturity looks like that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. This is what I mean by the sophistry of wicked men. Now, as it touches on this topic, here's one of the most wicked tricks that's played in the church today. Galatians chapter 3 says that uh, we are all one in Christ. There's neither male nor female, bond, free, Gentile, uh, Jew. It says that there are none of these things in Christ. So they take this precious gospel truth and then they twist it to say... There should be no male-female distinctions in the church. There's no reason to keep women out of ordained office. You see how that's a trick? That's a trick that a lot of these people will play. Many have been exposed to this, and it's, it's almost in, uh, uh, impossible for them to follow a good and necessary consequence formulation. I am not saying I think this is true of anybody here, but I'm trying to help you understand the age in which you live, and also sort of grease the skids for where we're going to go. Because this motion that we passed is not the kind of thing that you'll find chapter and verse. But it's it's an application that arises from prior truths. The method of doctrine found in the scripture, especially in the area of sexual ethics, is threefold. Nature, scripture, and application. In the scriptures, especially when we're talking about sexual ethics, sexual ethics refers to something broader than marital fidelity. It also refers to male-female roles, male-female piety, male-female discipleship. All of that is underneath what I'm calling sexual ethics. Nature, scripture, and application. Now we need some proof. 1 Corinthians 11.14, I'm going to ask um, Kenan to read 1 Corinthians 11.14 for us. Eleven fourteen. Actually, you know what? I, I do want you to read it, but I'm going to take it back for the sake of the, the recording. Sorry, brother. I, I know you're a competent reader, but I don't know if it'll pick it up here. Um, 1 Corinthians 11.14... Look at what Paul says. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Notice the basis of what Paul is saying. It starts with the light of nature. It starts with the light of nature. Um, Another one. Acts chapter 7 verse 22. Acts chapter 7, verse 22. Stephen is preaching uh, right before his martyrdom. 
And he says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, this might sound a little odd to us that this is part of the light of nature. In the Reformed understanding, when we speak of the light of nature, that is not only the created order of of birds and bees. It is not only man's self-conscious reflection on who he is. It is also the, the aggregate sort of knowledge from the pagan world. The, the wisdom of the Egyptians has this aggregate of wisdom and knowledge that they've collected. Now, you have to chew on the meat and spit out the bones with that stuff. I'm not saying you just take it all whole hog. But what I am saying is that as men made in God's image, interacting with God's creation have reflected on God's creation and have distilled truths about God's creation. They pervert those to a wrong end. They are motivated by a wrong uh, motive to seek these things. But that does not make the things that philosophy and other fields of human knowledge teach that are true. Moses was schooled in all the wisdom of the Egyptians before God called him. How do you think it was Moses had an understanding of organizing the nation of Israel and ordering the religious sacrifices of Israel, of judging between man and man? He does receive divine inspiration, but divine inspiration is not an internet download where God just injects knowledge that you didn't have before into your mind. Inspiration comes upon the personality of the prophets and uses and preserves and perfects the personality of those prophets to then write God's word. It does involve new information. It does involve knowledge of things that you could not know without God telling you directly. But it is an integrated operation along with the personality of the prophet. I'm getting uh, into the weeds here a little bit. So when I say, when we quote Stephen as saying he learned all the wisdom of the Egyptians, he's learning about the light of nature. He's learning things that are outside of God's special revelation. Maybe I can say it this way. God's special revelation, the books of the Old and New Testaments, are given for one purpose, to reveal to you the way of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, to read this book, you've got to learn a human language. Where do you get that human language from? Mom and dad. School. You have to have that knowledge from the light of nature to understand the light of Scripture. Now, I realize this this may be bumping against some things that are a little bit controversial, but we're going to see this more in the Scriptures. Daniel chapter 1, 3, and 4, same idea. We don't have to turn there, but it says that Daniel was taught in all the wisdom of Babylon and the Chaldeans. When he was taken to Babylon, he was brought there for the purpose of being uh, trained in all of that wisdom and knowledge. The method then in this series will incorporate all three elements. Nature, scripture, and application. By the grace of Christ to guide us into the proper knowledge of God and of His will. 
At this point, I'll pause for any questions. I know that we have had pork chops, lamb chops, and steak so far. We're, we're eating some heavy stuff right now. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yes. So you have the word nature, scripture, and application. Mm-hmm. Yes. Scripture it's is a good question. Let me repeat it. Let me repeat the question for the recording. It's good. The question is uh, for us as Christians, scripture is what helps us interpret nature, and scripture is also what leads us in the application to our lives. And so it seems that scripture would be the primary sort of building block of our knowledge. There's, I think, I think the way to answer this is we have to approach it from two different directions. We have to approach the question of human understanding from two different directions. The first would be from the order of your experience. In other words, as human beings, our first experiences, our first conscious experiences of God's revelation are of His revelation in nature. When a child is born, their first experience is, uh, well, I mean, obviously they have experiences before they're born, but let's say even in the womb when they can experience things. They experience the sound of mom's voice. They experience the sound of her heartbeat. They experience all of these nebulous sort of fuzzy things. But all of those things are the light of nature. They're not the light of scripture. As you develop and grow and you gain some more knowledge, scripture then... Uh, is what guides us into the way of salvation. Now, from an early age, we hope in the Reformed faith, our children are being exposed to Scripture from a very early age. What I'm laying out here is I'm not saying that Scripture is the... I'm sorry, uh, nature is the foundation for what Scripture teaches. Let me, let me say it this way, because... I. I It's a good question. I'm I'm struggling to answer it because I know there's a lot of philosophy behind my answer. So I'm going to try and use a metaphor to give a simple answer for what I'm trying to say. I think too often in the Reformed Church, we look at the light of nature and the light of Scripture as mortal enemies. We look at them as fighting one another and trying to kill each other and to overpower each other. When in reality, I think the Reformed tradition would say that The light of nature is a revelation of God. And the light of scripture is a revelation of God. And these two work in harmony with one another. These two complement each other and support each other in the knowledge of God and his ways. Now, scripture alone teaches you the gospel. Scripture alone teaches you the gospel. You cannot learn the gospel from looking at trees. However, 
the light of nature teaches you the fundamentals of what it means to be a human being. You see, the, the, the scriptures assume or repeat most of what the light of nature teaches. It doesn't repeat itself. God does not repeat himself again in scripture. Am I answering your question? I feel like I'm... Is it helping? Yeah. There you go. Yeah, Romans 1. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that'd been the easy answer. Um, basically what Paul is saying in Romans 1, that the light of nature teaches these things, I guess to maybe sort of tie this back in a little bit more, because here's my concern with this, and I'm a little off script here. I think one of the problems that's facing us in the Reformed Church is we have ignored the light of nature for so long that we've opened ourselves to be attacked by the attacks of the revolutionary forces. What I mean by that is, often in the Reformed Church, when we talk about the light of nature, we often are thinking about what nature can't do. We think about the light of nature in a negative light. We say, well, nature can't save you. You can't know Jesus from the light of nature. You can't know your sins from the light of nature. You can't know God as your Father from the light of nature. But what we then say is, it's therefore useless to us. But you see, that, that's not the right way to approach the light of nature. The light of nature cannot teach you about God. Great, I agree. Amen. At least in the gospel. He can't teach you about God in the gospel. But the light of nature does teach you very important things about living in God's creation. Like the difference between boys and girls. That's light of nature stuff. The, 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 the purpose and the function of civil government. Scripture does speak about it, Romans 13. But in order to be a good magistrate and a good statesman, you've got to know a lot of history. In order to be a lawyer, you've got to know a lot of history about the law in the West. That's not going to come from the Bible. So my point is, the light of nature has a very important place that we need to recover. And perhaps this attempt will get us there. Uh, get us there. So, I, I want to begin with... Um, today with the idea of the congregation. We begin with a simple concept, but it's necessary to define it, the congregation. First, we want to define it from Scripture, and I want to just assert and prove two things from Scripture. One, that there is a congregation of the Lord which is unique from all other societies established among men. So all we want to prove is that there is a congregation of the Lord, which is unique from all other societies established among men. Several passages we can go to. Psalm 74.2 that we opened with. The psalmist prays and says, Lord, have mercy on your congregation. Psalm 22, 22. 
Psalm 22:22. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. And then again in verse 25, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. Hebrew, the word for congregation and assembly is essentially the same. It is the same in this passage. Psalm 107.32. Psalm 107.32. Let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. Lamentations 1.10. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things. For she has seen the nations enter the sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your congregation. Joel 2.16 again speaks about uh, the assembly or the congregation. James 5.14 James 5.14 Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church or congregation. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. There's more passages we could cite, obviously, but I hope it's abundantly proven to you that there is a congregation of the Lord, distinct and unique from all other institutions of men. Now, we need to have our faith buttressed in this, because we live in a day that is dominated by one institution overall, and that is the state. The, the, the state has occupied such a place in our thinking and our society that it is, it is easy to forget the magistrate is only one institution in human society. There are two other foundational institutions in human society, the family and the church. And so we need to be reminded that the church, the congregation, is a distinct, unique institution. Secondly, we need to also know that the congregation is the special object of the triune God's love and grace. It is this congregation of the Lord that is unique from all other institutions, that is the object of God's saving grace and compassion. Just one verse for this. Again, there's more that could be cited. Ephesians 5, 25. Hopefully well known to you all. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Couldn't have said it better myself. Christ's love and his sacrifice is for his congregation, his church, his bride, this is what the Lord God loves. So, at this point, I don't think I'm covering any new territory for anybody here, but just be encouraged, it's good to have us reminded, apologetics is not only for the unbeliever who contradicts, but it's also to buttress the faith of those who already believe. Now, The next thing I want to get into 
which I will try to be efficient with, but I make no promises. Um, We want to define the congregation even further. And the way that we're going to define this congregation even further is through a method that our forefathers used in the Westminster Confession. This is known as fourfold causation. This is a concept that comes from Aristotle was used throughout the medieval period and was employed to great benefit in the formation of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Fourfold causation involves four things. The material, the formal, the efficient, and the final cause. Now you may ask yourself, this seems like a lot of detail for what should be a simple question. However, when we are trying to get an accurate picture of the truth, when we're trying to define things, one of the most important things you can do is clearly defining your terms. These four types of causes are what help us to explain what a congregation actually is. All we've said at this point, it's a unique thing that God loves. That doesn't make it any different than you as an individual. You're a unique thing that God loves. So how do we distinguish the congregation from the individual or from all other uh, institutions? The material cause, this would be the thing it's made of. So a material cause is the stuff that makes it up. A bronze statue, what would the material cause be of the bronze statue? The raw bronze itself, the raw metal, bronze. So the material... This is not impious, that's just a Greek word, chi, and I don't want to waste a bunch of ink. This means Christians. Professing Christians, that's that's what's going on there. Um, Sinners professing to adhere to the true religion and their children are the material, the raw substance of the congregation. Acts 2, uh, 38 and 47. No need to turn there because we need to move through. I'm just going to go to these and read them. Acts 2, 38 through 37, 47. Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Skipping down to verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the material. The formal cause. The form 
has to do with the material taking a unique shape. If you have a raw bucket of bronze, you don't have a statue. That raw bucket of bronze has to be melted and poured into the mold. And it's the shape of the statue which is the form that the statue is going to take. So here, the form is... Under officers, elders, pastors, priests, Levites, whichever office you want to think about, a congregation takes shape when it is under officers of the church. Joel 2, 15 and 16. Joel 2, 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom come out of his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Notice, Joel is calling for a congregation to gather under the authority of the officers. Assemble the elders. These would have been the officers in ancient Israel. Likewise, Paul in Philippians chapter 1 introduces himself to the Philippian church this way. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. He cites the officers over that particular congregation. So this is the form of a congregation. How about the efficient? The efficient cause is going to be the thing that actually produces the effect. Raw bronze, you have a plan for a statue. Here, it's the actual art of the craftsman. It's the craftsman that actually causes this thing to come into being. The efficient cause of the congregation... is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, by His divine power, is what gives the congregation its life. He is the one that actually holds it all together. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, uh, with all lowliness and longsuffering, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit... In the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, etc., etc. Notice he begins the idea of unity centers on the Holy Spirit. Finally, the telos, or the final cause. This refers to the reason why this thing exists refers to the purpose or the inclination for this thing. That's what a final cause is. And for the church, the congregation, the final cause, the whole reason that it exists, (laughs) 
Union and communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Union and communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the reason a congregation exists. That is its telos, its purpose. <clears throat> Ephesians, again, uh, it's the one New Testament letter that focuses on the church. That's why a lot of this is coming out of there. Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. Through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Notice the idea of gathering, congregating, assembling. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The purpose of our assembling together under the authority of elders and with the presence of the Holy Spirit is so that God would dwell among us. Finally, Paul says in uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, I won't read all of this, but if you have time to go back and look at it, Ephesians 3, 9 through 13, Paul expands on this idea further when he talks about the fellowship of the mystery. That we in the church should be united to God in Christ and that His wisdom might be made known in the church through Christ Jesus in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. But notice the boldness, access. Through Christ, we can commune with the Father. That's what Paul's talking about. So this is the final cause. Now, let's, let's put all this stuff together. When we speak of the congregation gathered as a congregation, the language of our motion, when we talk about a congregation coming together as a congregation, we are speaking of a gathering of professing believers under the authority of certain elders in obedience to the word for the purpose of religious worship. The congregation gathered as a congregation is a gathering of professing believers under the authority of certain elders in obedience to the word for the purpose of religious worship. That's what we mean by a congregation gathered as a congregation. For the last couple of minutes, I know, I know it's getting on, but I just want to point out something about this definition. If you don't have one of these, let's say we take that one out. You don't have a congregation. You may have the other three. But if you're missing any one of these, you don't have a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have professing believers that are filled with the Holy Spirit, that come together to worship. But that could just be your office Bible study. That could be your prayer meeting during family worship. You could have professing Christians under officers who have gathered for worship, but let's say they're not regenerate. That's ancient Israel in the time of Christ. That's the people Stephen was preaching to. You are professing believers. You have priests and Levites. You gather at the temple year after year to worship, but you don't have the Holy Spirit. 
you're therefore not a congregation. That's how this works. If you take out any one of these, you don't have a congregation. Now let's think about this. Let's say, as has happened in the past, Scott Schallenberger invites the whole congregation to his house for a 4th of July picnic. Well, what do you have? You've got professing Christians under the authority of officers who are filled with the Holy Spirit and they gather at Scott's house for what? Fun, not for religious worship. So a gathering at Scott's house on the 4th of July is not the congregation in this very technical sense that we're using it here. That technical sense has to be kept in mind. When we talk about a congregation, we're not talking about any gathering of Christians for any purpose we can think of. We're talking about a gathering of Christians for religious worship. That's all we're talking about. Okay? Questions at this point? I know we've gone a little bit long, and I know that the the steak and potatoes in this one is pretty heaping. Any questions at this point? Maybe the better way to do this, and I'll say this for the recording because people might listen to it and want to submit it to me. If you have questions about this material that you want me to address at the end of this series, maybe submit it to me over email. I'll collect them and filter through them if there are good questions. Um, A a lot of these lessons are going to be like this. They're going to be pretty dense because I want to get us to a good understanding of where we were going. Why don't we close with prayer and then we can fellowship. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and for your truth that you've given to us in nature and in scripture. We pray that you would help us to discern with the lenses of Scripture the truths that we need from nature so that we might serve you faithfully all of our days. And we pray you would bless our congregation as we, as we depart to our homes to enjoy a Sabbath rest and gather once again this evening to worship you. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.